Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. So you you grew up in Butte? I did. Um, my father was a miner and the, my family were miners going back four or five generations. Kathleen McLaughlin is a reporter. For years, she worked in China. But recently, she decided to come home to Butte, Montana, the same copper mining town where she grew up. It was once known as the richest hill on earth. Drive me through this region where mining has really been such a part of the infrastructure for so long. You come, let's say you're coming from Helena and you cross over the continental divide to the west. You come over this huge mountain and down into a valley that is Butte. So when you look at the town, you'll see head frames, these black structures that look kind of like oil derricks. They're not. They were the lifts that put men down into the mines underground. Underneath those head frames are thousands and thousands of miles of abandoned mine shafts. Mining supported Kathleen's family, supported the whole town, really. But it was always a tense bargain. Accidents made workers suspicious. There were union strikes. And then the mines began to close. I was about... Ooh, 11 years old when mining completely shut down in Butte. And so my childhood in the 80s was really kind of defined by this shutdown and closures and people leaving town and the economy collapsed. And I left right after high school because, to be honest, it didn't seem like there was any opportunity for me in Butte. For the last 40 years, this region has been dealing with what the mines left behind. When did this wariness start to encompass the possible health effects of mining? In my memory and just, you know, talking with my family, I think there had always been some suspicion about what was in the dust, about what was in, you know, the air when the smelters were running in Butte. I remember um, when I was a kid, my brother caught a fish in one of the local streams and we brought it home and we were all surprised that there was a live fish to begin with, but we were, no one was allowed to eat it. I mean, I think it just got thrown away. The area where Kathleen grew up, it's now part of the country's largest Superfund site. The Environmental Protection Agency says it's contaminated with hazardous waste. You can see it in the mountains of dust by the side of the highway, in the trees that seem stunted, refusing to grow. A few years back... When a flock of snow geese landed in a pool of wastewater from the mine, thousands of birds died. How long has Butte and, and the region around Butte been sort of trying to clean up after the mining operation? Well, when the... Oh, my God. <laughs> it's such a difficult question. I think they've been trying to clean up since the mining started. Today on the show, for decades, 
the EPA has been trying to force Montana's mines to clean up after themselves. But some residents are asking for more. And their case? It's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you drive west out of Butte, along the interstate, you'll find smaller towns. They've been dealing with the toxic effects of copper mining, too. The people who live there have filed this lawsuit, demanding a more aggressive cleanup. Their houses are in the shadow of a giant smokestack near the town of Anaconda and the town of Opportunity. After copper was dug out of the earth in Butte, it got taken here to be melted down. And then this smelter, which is taller than the Washington Monument, belched out plumes of arsenic, which settled in the soil. But back when these mines opened, nobody knew this would happen. They just knew the mine was massive and it had plenty of good jobs. I read a statistic that between 1895 and 1960, the Butte mines produced 15 billion pounds of copper. So the early 1900s, Butte was the largest copper producer in the world. So if you could, this was not one small mine. This was the world's source of copper. And it was all tied to the electrification of America, copper wire. So Butte was producing this thing that was helping the rest of the country develop. And copper, it really, it took over the region. There was mining in Butte and all these tunnels you're talking about underneath the town. And then a few miles away, a giant smelter opened. Right. So they planted this facility 30 miles away from Butte in a town that was called Anaconda after the company. Anaconda became part of the Butte mining operations, even though it's 30 miles away from Butte. So the towns were really linked. And it's kind of interesting, just growing up in Butte, the culture between Butte and Anaconda was very different. You had the Butte miners and the Anaconda smeltermen. And even though they're part of the same complex, it was kind of two the two different cultures. Anaconda was really proud of having the smelter, and Butte had the mines, which had the actual product and the actual money. Um, when the closures happened, you know, Anaconda was hit a lot harder than Butte, and the pollution was a big part of it. Butte has different pollution. Anaconda has arsenic and lead on the ground, and that we we all know that those things are quite dangerous. Whereas Butte's pollution is a little bit 
more opaque. We don't exactly know what it's doing to people, but but you knew what the situation was in Anaconda. My understanding is that pretty early on, like within the first few decades of the mining operation opening, so like the turn of the century, farmers started to notice their livestock having trouble. That's right. I mean, it was it was clear within a few years that the smoke was not healthy. So Opportunity, this town that we're talking about, this little fraction of Anaconda called Opportunity, um, was actually deliberately built in the path of the smoke by the Anaconda company to prove that it was safe. So there was this constant back and forth with ranchers and farmers in the valley and the company. Um, you know, people were saying that that crops wouldn't grow, that livestock were getting sick, and the company was insisting, no, it's perfectly safe. We're going to build this little town here right in the plume just to prove that it's safe. And my understanding is that they actually wrote into the fine print of these agreements with people when they sold them land and opportunity that the company reserved the right to pollute the atmosphere. I mean, I think that they had such an, they had an uneasy deal, the residents of this town. They knew that it might be dangerous. At the same time, it was a job that allowed them to make a good living. And, it, you know, just talking about this, this brotherhood or this bond that they formed was very strong. It seemed like as the years went on, Montanans began to see the pollution affecting their everyday life in various ways, and they wanted to address it. So what happened in 1970? So the state rewrote its constitution, and it's a very progressive document, and it's been kind of held up as a model of a progressive state constitution for other states. One of the key things that makes it so progressive is they wrote in a clause that gives Montanans a guarantee to a, quote, clean and healthful environment. Now, there isn't really a definition provided for what that means, you know, because this is just the the overall governing document. But my understanding is the hope was that Montanans could use this clause in the Constitution to protect themselves from the kinds of pollution that were building up in Anaconda and Butte from the mining operations. I was struck by how intentional it was. Like I found a speech from a judge who was involved in writing the Constitution in 1970, rewriting it, I guess. And he said, you know, I'm a fourth generation Anacondan. And he told a story about falling into the river and his watch stopped working. (laughs) And he brought it to a watchmaker who said everything inside has dissolved. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but this, it's the kind of story you hear if you spend a day in Butte or Anaconda and ask people that they, everyone has a story like that. I mean, everyone knew that that it was that things were bad. When did the federal government come in and say, listen, we really need to clean this region up? Well, I think Superfund sites were declared pretty soon in the 80s. The federal Superfund law gives the EPA the power to investigate and clean up places with hazardous materials. They can also hold companies accountable for the pollution they've caused. This series of sites was designated. There's sites in Butte, sites in Anaconda. There were sites all the way up to Missoula, 120 miles away down the Clark Fork River. So that all happened 
through the 80s. But because the Superfund program was so new, no one, I think, knew exactly what that was going to mean. And here we are decades later, and it's still a battle to try and figure out exactly what it means. Well, and you've written a little bit about the jockeying for which place gets cleaned up first. Mm-hmm. Because Missoula, this bigger town, which is you know further down the river, it got cleaned up first. Yeah. So Missoula is wealthier. It's much larger. The headwaters of the river that flows into Missoula actually starts in Butte. And there was a dam outside of Missoula that had built up toxic sediment over a number of years. And there were concerns that the dam was going to burst and flood into Missoula with toxic waste. So pretty early on when the Superfund program started, a group of very vocal Missoula residents who did know how to work the system, they lobbied for a cleanup, they got the dam removed. And initially, the sediment that had built up behind the dam was supposed to be placed right outside Missoula, but that changed. And they they loaded this toxic sludge into rail cars and brought it 100 miles back upriver and dumped it outside of Opportunity. So these communities that were dealing with their own toxic waste and their own environmental challenges, all of a sudden they're also home to Missoula's toxic waste. Exactly. And it just became this symbolic symbolic fight between, you know, the larger, much wealthier town and the smaller, poorer town that was constantly getting dumped on. And that really was a bruise to people in Anaconda and opportunity that simply by virtue of Missoula being Missoula, they got this cleanup first. Because if you think about it, it's a little bit counterintuitive to clean up downriver first instead of cleaning up the headwaters first. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Who made that decision? Was it an EPA decision? It was an EPA decision, but EPA decisions are driven by public pressure. With that clause in the state constitution to protect them, residents from the town called Opportunity are trying to exert their own public pressure. They organized in the 2000s to bring a lawsuit against ARCO. That's what everyone calls the big company that now owns the mining complex. ARCO and EPA had agreed to bring the level of arsenic in the soil down, But residents of Opportunity, they want them to go further, 10 times further. That's the crux of this lawsuit. The residents in Opportunity want the levels restored to pre-contamination levels. And that's a little bit vague what exactly that might be. But it's maybe between maybe around 25 parts per million. So it's a tenth of what the EPA did. How did the EPA decide on that threshold of 250 parts per million? As far as I can tell, this is a minimum standard for human health. Minimum. Yeah, it's not necessarily uh, the best standard. There are other Superfund sites in the country that have much lower levels in their remediation plans. So there isn't, for example, a set law about this is what you get when you get an arsenic remediation in your town. This is the level. It doesn't exactly work that way. It's negotiated based on all kinds of factors like what it's going to cost, what the damage was like, you know, what the land was like before. So the residents of Opportunity were really unhappy with this 250, especially because they know there are other communities in the country that have had 
their arsenic levels brought down much lower. Was it purely a compromise between the EPA and the company that was responsible for this pollution? Or was the community involved in the decision-making at all? The community was involved. They were, there were public meetings, there was public input. They don't believe their concerns were listened to. The people who filed this lawsuit, they don't believe that their concerns were heard. Hmm. We should be super clear about exactly what happened. There are about 100 families, is that right? Correct, yes. And some of them have had some cleanup by the company and others haven't. And they basically decided to sue and they ended up at the Montana Supreme Court. That's right. What happened in that case? The Montana Supreme Court said that they had the right to pursue further cleanup based on the state's constitutional protection or constitutional guarantee to a clean and healthful environment. Um, And I think the plan was then to pursue a jury trial to figure out a settlement in all of this. I mean, if you look at the numbers, the amount, the estimated amount of further cleanup that they're asking for is not that huge. It's it's a maybe 20% of the money that ARCO has already spent on this site. Um, It seems that what ARCO slash BP is afraid of here is the precedent of allowing a group of citizens or acceding to a group of citizens request to go beyond EPA mandated cleanup. That is the decision that's now before the U.S. Supreme Court is the Montana Supreme Court's decision. Yeah, it sounds like pretty much immediately the company said no, no, and went directly to the Supreme Court is my understanding. That's right. And that surprised everyone. Um, That surprised the opportunity residents that surprised the lawyers for the opportunity residents that it didn't go through the system. It went straight from Montana Supreme Court to U.S. Supreme Court. And they were also surprised that the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. So I think that it it took everyone, yeah, took everyone by surprise. The Supreme Court heard arguments for this case on Tuesday. For the reporters covering it, the general takeaway was the justices were leaning towards a ruling in favor of ARCO and the EPA. Some justices seemed skeptical of Opportunity's argument. Which is very interesting to me, you know. I mean, it, the, the, the residents of Opportunity kind of frame this as a state's rights issue, that the state can make a constitution that gives them greater protections than the EPA might. and Which is a conservative argument. Yes, one would think. <laughs> one would think. I mean, it sounds like the company and the court feel a little bit trapped to me, where they're making this argument that if we allow individual residents to surpass what the EPA has already agreed to with the company in terms of cleanup, there will just be no end to these lawsuits. And we're going to see more and more of them. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I have heard from the attorneys representing the opportunity residents that this is not unusual for people to sue in conjunction with EPA cleanups, that these kind of lawsuits are not unheard of. I think part of this decision is going to determine how powerful the EPA is in these cases. And also, I think maybe the reason that ARCO is really intent on pursuing this and brought it straight to the Supreme Court is this case, the opportunity cases, the tip of the iceberg in the Butte and Anaconda Superfund complex. And in the coming months, the EPA is going to unveil the cleanup plan for the larger Superfund sites. Now, 
I suspect they don't want legal challenges from every point in Butte and Anaconda because people are unhappy with the cleanup that's going to be done because it's going to be a massive, massive undertaking that has taken decades to get to. Hmm. So you're saying this is their first chance at sort of cleaning up the mess and they're about to have to clean up a lot more mess. Correct. And so they want to have this on lock. Like we are agreeing with EPA. This is all that we're doing and we are done. It seems that way. I mean, and they've been in negotiations with EPA for a few decades about how to clean all this up. So, um, yeah, maybe they just want it over with. You know, you say that the health effects of all this pollution are really unknown. For people who live in Opportunity or Anaconda, how do they feel like they're seeing the impact of the pollution? You know, they... um, I talked to one guy who won't let his grandkids play in his yard because he's afraid of what's in the soil. Um, I talked to another guy whose dog used to lay out on the bare soil where the grass wouldn't grow on top of a hill, and she's got tumors all over her stomach. And he's 100% convinced that those are a result of laying in that dirt. Um, They don't have kind of a, I guess you'd say, normal relationship with the place. You see opportunity. It's gorgeous. I mean, the setting is just stunning. It's beautiful. You've got these snow-capped mountain peaks and this big open valley. It's really, really beautiful. It's the kind of place you would expect to see people outside playing in the playing in the outdoors all the time. And they do in the mountains, but the town itself, it doesn't have a normal relationship with its own yards, I guess, is the, is the kicker. Hmm. I was reading that the CDC is actually studying the communities in the Anaconda Valley. They're going to be releasing a report later this year about just how much lead and arsenic people are carrying around inside them. Yeah, there's been some disturbing studies. It's it's pretty disturbing to me that these studies weren't done 30 years ago, that someone didn't start. And I think this goes to the question of who has the power to get environmental justice and Anaconda and Opportunity just haven't had that power. But it, to me, is is pretty shocking that the health effects of all of this contamination have not been deeply studied, really. It's kind of scary. Hmm. Is there any chance that the Supreme Court here rules that the state shouldn't necessarily involve itself in this case, but that the EPA needs to do more? <sighs> Maybe. I mean, I can't guess what they're going to rule, to be honest. What's interesting is the people of Opportunity and their lawyers have said that even if the court rules against them, they're going to find a different legal avenue to pursue. So I would say the fight isn't over, whatever happens. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was great. Kathleen McLaughlin is a reporter based in Montana. You can read her piece about this lawsuit in The Washington Post. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Danielle Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. Tomorrow, you can check the feed for another episode of What Next TBD with Lizzie O'Leary. She's going to be talking about the rise of Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, and what it means now that they're stepping down from the company they created. I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you Monday. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.